Well, grab your Bibles and you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. That's where we'll be. Today we're talking about pride and uh, marriage. Pride is a problem. We agree? <laughs> okay. And that's that's a, enough for you to chew on for a while, right? Pride is a problem. You know, in just a handful of days, our culture is going to celebrate pride. And putting colors with it and putting it all over every company, uh, you know, pride, 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 that doesn't make it good. It's still bad. It's a bad thing. Pride is bad. Our culture will celebrate pride, but we won't. Right, Christians? We never celebrate pride. Pride is awful. And just in case you're wondering what the problem is with pride, I got two short quotes from you from long back in church history. The first one's from Augustine, or Augustine, however you want to say it. Pride is the mother of all sins. It is pregnant with all sins. I thought that one's pretty good. Pride is pregnant with all sins. And how about this even shorter one, Thomas Watson? Pride seeks to ungod God. That's pretty profound, isn't it? In just a few words. That's what some of the best thinkers and writers can do. They can just use five words to make you think for a while. Pride seeks to ungod God. And pride can sneak into every part of our lives. Last week, as we were talking about even our sanctification, the process in which God is making us more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ, pride gets in there. How did pride get in there? It's like, you know, ants or something. How'd you get in there? Well, pride just sneaks in, and it affects some of our deepest relationships, including marriage. And we want strong marriages in this church. We want to have strong marriages. So this is for all of you who are here today who are married. You might think, well, I'm not prideful. (laughs) You get it. That's good. Uh, And if you're not married, I think you're still going to get quite a bit from this message because there's a lot of overlap. A lot of what will be said will be particular to marriage, but a lot won't be. So I want you to consider all relationships. Well, we need to start with defining marriage. What is marriage? We'll just be on this briefly. I want us to think biblically about this precious relationship that we have in life, marriage. Let's start in Genesis 2.18, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, And every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he, God, took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is the really important verse for today. Verse 24, For this reason a man shall leave his father 
and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Well, marriage is a, is a gift to all people, not just to Christians, not just to God's people, but all people get to share in this gift of marriage. Isn't that interesting? That God, in His common grace, just like with having children, which comes from marriage, God has given this gift of marriage, this relationship, to all people. And this is where it all began. Back in Genesis 2, it began with a man who was on his own, and God said, not good. Not good. There needs to be a helper suitable for him. And he called her, this is verse 23, he called her woman because she was taken out of man. And as she came out of man, they are to be joined back together in this relationship of marriage. For this reason, verse 24, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Well, even though this is a gift for all people, I believe that as Christians, we should have the best understanding of marriage. We have the direct connection, the direct relationship to the inventor of marriage, the God who created us and gave us this relationship. And so I want to give you a definition of marriage. There are all kinds of good definitions you could use, but here's mine for today. Marriage is a covenantal union between a man and a woman before God for the purpose of companionship, meeting needs, procreation, and picturing Christ and the church. Marriage is a covenantal union between a man and a woman before God for the purpose of companionship, meeting needs, procreation, and picturing Christ and the church. Now, to get a, a deeper look at this, we need to go to the Old Testament, or New Testament, rather, to Ephesians chapter 5. I want us, want us to look at the last verses of Ephesians 5. We're just, remember, we're getting our bearings and defining what marriage is, what marriage is supposed to be, God's design for marriage. We looked at Genesis 2. That's the initial narrative of where we came from and what marriage is. But now in Ephesians 5, we're going to get a deeper look. We're going to see a different dimension to all of this, particularly that last phrase of my definition, marriage is to be a picture of Christ and the church. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 28, it says, So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Look at what he quotes in verse 31. It's Genesis 2.24. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Well, <clears throat> here we see a key element that I want you to hold on to. It's that verse, Genesis 2.24, the last part of that verse that's quoted here, the two shall become one flesh. Two people individually coming together and becoming one flesh in the sight of God, becoming one as God has declared it. And this is unique to human beings. 
No other creature of God joins with another creature and becomes one. This is unique to humans, those made in God's image. It's unique that we come together in the marital relationship, in the marital covenant, and become one flesh. It's a total sharing of life. That's what it means to become one flesh. You see your spouse as your primary concern because you're totally sharing life together. This has far-reaching implications. It means that the spouse's needs are more important than your own. Your spouse's needs are more important than your own. That's pretty, pretty heavy, isn't it? That's a weighty responsibility. That's a, that's a really deep outlook <laughs> on the marital relationship. Now, this doesn't mean that you don't have needs anymore, of course, because your, your spouse's main concern are your needs. See how that works? Your primary concern is your spouse's needs and vice versa. You don't become some emotionless robot without feelings or passions where you don't get your feelings hurt from time to time or something like that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that your spouse's needs are more important than your own. And you are called to say no to wrong feelings and wrong passions. And that's where pride comes in. Because pride, as it enters into this relationship, it starts introducing wrong feelings, wrong passions, wrong thoughts, wrong emotions. And as Christians, we are to put off this sinful behavior. We talked about this in Sunday school today. Putting off sinful behavior and nourish this precious relationship that God has given us, the marital relationship. Pride in marriage, this is, if you're taking notes, another blank for you to fill in. Pride in marriage stems from a basic rejection of God's purposes in making two people one flesh. Pride in marriage stems from a basic rejection of God's purposes in making two people one flesh. So let's spend some time this morning, kind of like time at the dentist. We're going to spend some time talking about the deeds of our flesh that pop up in this very important relationship of marriage. And I think you'll find overlap to other areas of your life. This part isn't very fun, okay? But I think it's important that we do this, that we think through the far-reaching effects. I want us to dwell on how pride plays out in marriage. And I would like for you to highlight a couple of areas for yourself where you need perhaps a little attention on putting off certain behaviors in marriage. Now, if you're like me, you can just highlight the whole thing, okay? That makes it pretty simple. But if we could whittle it down to just a couple of items, that would be good. Well, I have a graphic that we'll, we'll follow through with today. Uh, Walker, I didn't tell you that today you're on your toes, all right? So you've uh, got to be ready for the, the slides today. So uh, pride in marriage manifests itself through selfishness and self-righteousness. So there should be a slide back there titled Pride and Self-Righteousness. There you go. Pride will manifest itself in selfish actions arising out of a self-righteous mindset. Selfishness, of course, is caring about yourself the most. Caring about yourself the most. And that's going to be evidenced by your actions. Almost always that will be evidenced by your actions. And the first thing I want us to consider, the first behavior I want us to consider is monopolization. Monopolization. What does it mean to monopolize? Well, of course, it means to think that everything is all about you but it means to take or to control something. To take or to control 
In fact, when you monopolize something in a relationship, you start to make the other person feel like a prisoner. Perhaps you've been in some conversations where you felt like a prisoner to the conversation. You're thinking of a way to get out because the person just won't stop talking. And the person keeps going and going and going, and you're just like trying to escape and you can't. Well, that's monopolizing. That person is monopolizing your time, monopolizing the conversation. And in the marital relationship, we see that type of behavior show itself all over the house. It begins even at the dinner table. This is really simple, really trite in elementary, but even at the dinner table, someone monopolizes perhaps the food or the dessert. There's never any seconds at my house. I don't have an opportunity to get the last bite of dessert. Very trite, very elementary, but hopefully gets the wheels turning. It happens in the living room. You're sitting there, you're having a conversation in the living room, and Who's controlling the topic of conversation? Who's controlling the amount of time? Who's saying I, me, my the most? Who's monopolizing the time? Not just at the dinner table in the living room, but even in the bedroom. I'll let the adults in the room understand the euphemism there. Someone setting individual desires as the goal for the couple. You see what this is doing with the one flesh idea here? Someone who elevates personal individual desires as the goal for the pair. And this is anti-love. That passage that Rex read for us at the beginning, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 and 5, it says, Love is patient, love is kind, and it is not jealous. Love does not brag. Love is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. The monopolizer, the selfish one, the prideful one, seeks his own. This is what pride does, and it shows up in all kinds of ways in the marital relationship. Well, another deed of the flesh that shows up in marriage, stemming from pride, stemming from selfishness, is anger. Anger, not just monopolization, but anger. Someone who's always ready to get upset when his or her personal desires are threatened. You know people like this? You live with somebody like this? Do you live with yourself and you're like this? Maybe that's the case. Someone who has personal desires and, boy, anytime that there's a change of plans, there's anger. Someone who has a lack of gratitude, just walking around ungrateful, not recognizing God's good gifts for what they are, gifts of God, rejecting God's gifts for his or her own goals. So often the angry person is always criticizing nitpicking. Nothing's ever good enough. Always critiquing and cutting down the other person. It makes marriage feel like constant battle and war, doesn't it? When someone's always criticizing, complaining like God's not in control. And aren't we all capable of this? Complaining, whining, grumbling as though God's not in control of what's going on. But we're not getting our own way. And pride loves to have its own way. The angry person's often accusatory. So often, we project our own hearts through this. I just think this is fascinating. You're saying that someone else is arrogant. I read read a great book this week. It was talking about projecting our arrogance. You know that humble people don't complain about other people being arrogant? Because they're humble. They don't see it. It doesn't cut. Arrogant people are usually the ones who are complaining about people being arrogant. 
when we say someone's not trustworthy, when we say, when we judge someone harshly, we're usually just projecting our own hearts. Proverbs 29 has a, well, Proverbs has a lot to say about pride and anger, but Proverbs 29 says this about anger. An angry man stirs up strife, and a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. And we know, too, from the book of James that the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God, does it? The purposes of God. And what does pride do? Pride leads to anger, selfish anger. One more I want to give you as we think about selfishness in marriage. Another way that pride is manifested in marriage, that's self-pity. <laughs> self-pity, demanding that the spouse shares in your self-focus and self-centered sorrow. <laughs> Demanding that the spouse shares in your selfishness. Now, we're not talking about sorrow over sin here. Sorrow over sin is good. In fact, if you read 2 Corinthians 7, it talks about different types of sorrow. There's a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow leads to death. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Well, this is not a godly sorrow. This is not sorrow over sin. But this is when someone is sorrowful over unmet expectations. Someone who's feeling sad for themselves. Feeling sorry for himself or herself because he's not being approved the way he desires. Feeling sorry for ourselves. Now this is kind of like pride in a trench coat. Because so often... It doesn't look like it's puffed up and prideful. It's not saying, hey, 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 I'm, I'm full of myself. It's putting ourselves down, right? That's what self-pity is. But the purpose of you putting yourself down when you're being prideful in your self-pity is just so that someone else will exalt you. It's setting a trap that someone would walk into and lift you up, and you want your own glory from those words of exaltation from someone else. It's very, very prideful. It's putting yourself down as a way of commanding exaltation in your marriage. Now, some might say that women are more prone to this, but in my experience, I've seen more men act this way than women. I've seen more husbands act this way than wives. Self-pity, putting themselves down so that their wives would exalt them. How selfish, how prideful. Well, these bad behaviors come from somewhere. They come from a self-righteous mind. And if you want a, a good working definition for self-righteousness, let me, let me give you this one. It's a mental illness. Self-righteousness is a mental illness. And to speak more biblically, it's the mental illness that Adam and Eve wanted and obtained and then passed on to us. That's what self-righteousness is. It's a disease of your mind where you think that you have some grounding in your own perfections. Self-righteousness is the mental illness that our Great, 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 great grandparents wanted, obtained, and passed on to us. And as we consider the self-righteous mind, this is manifested in a variety of ways. One being a mind that desires to be Lord, lordship, a lordship mindset. What, what is a person who desires to be Lord, a person who claims his own lordship, what does he do? Well, he declares himself to be God. Now, of course, we don't ever come out and say this, do we? I hope not. I'm getting a lot of weird looks today. It's probably because it's a topical message and not a verse by verse, but I hope you're with me. I hope, I hope you're keeping up and uh, that you're getting something. The, the lordship mindset says, I desire to be God. I, I am going to be God. This is going all the way back to when Satan fell. 
I will make myself like the Most High. I will reign. And so, someone who declares himself or herself to be God expects obedience or conformity to himself or herself. Again, we're never this forward, but we expect someone to obey us, to conform to us. Let me show you an example of this in Luke chapter 10. Turn with me to Luke 10, Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 10, starting in verse 38. Luke chapter 10, 38 to the end. Expecting service instead of serving others. Luke 10, verse 38. It says, Now as they were traveling traveling along, he, Jesus, entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. (laughs) Verse 41, but the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Well, there's a lot to notice in here. I don't want you to notice or think that serving is bad. What Martha was doing in and of itself wasn't bad. Preparing isn't a bad thing. It's good to be prepared people. But do you notice that Martha was not serving Mary in this? What did Martha expect from Mary? Conformity to her expectations, didn't she? Martha was was doing her business and she wanted Mary to be like her. Lord, don't you care that Mary's not like me? (laughs) Now, of course, there's something to be said that Martha was doing all that instead of being at the Lord's feet and worshiping Him. But she was also expecting Mary to be just like her. She wasn't serving her sister. But instead, she was demanding that her sister become just like her. And this can happen in marriages, can't it? It's not just siblings who act this way with each other. That husbands and wives can demand that the other one meet their expectations and become just like them, wanting to be Lord of their lives. When you are exercising your lowercase l lordship, trying to be God in your own mind, you also end up doing some really, really nasty things like withholding forgiveness. Withholding forgiveness. Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? Here's the good news. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. If God was to mark all of our sins and keep track of all of our sins and withhold forgiveness, who could stand? Nobody could. And if we withhold forgiveness from our spouse, well, that is an absolute train wreck, isn't it? That won't end well. And people with this mindset often never ask for forgiveness either. Not only do they withhold forgiveness, they often never ask for it. The self-righteous mind, why would the self-righteous person ever ask for forgiveness anyway? He or she is self-righteous. Well, another behavior flowing from selfishness or a self-righteous mindset is manipulation. Manipulation, seeking to predestine and arrange your own circumstances through other people. 
You see, are you getting a theme about becoming your own God and seeking to predestine your own circumstances? Pride, that's what pride tries to do. It seeks to un-God God, like Thomas Watson said. Arranging your own circumstances through other people. This is a very sick and twisted sin. It's a very confusing sin. This is when you gaslight people. It's when you twist reality to make other people do what you want them to do. This is whenever we set forth a condition with our wife or with our husband. If you do this, then I'll be pleasant. Ever been around people like that? They're not pleasant by default, but you have to perform. You have to do something in order for you to get the pleasant version of me. That's manipulation. That's sinful. And that comes from pride. That's also a works-based gospel, isn't it? You notice how God is just, He is gracious at His core. He's overflowing with grace. He's naturally gracious. You aren't. And so when you default to your deeds of the flesh and you seek to manipulate others, you don't give them a gospel of grace. You give them a gospel of works, don't you? Well, I'll be nice if you blank. And it's always for personal gain. Manipulation is all about getting attention, getting possessions, getting authority or control over your circumstances. Manipulation is about gaining status or even gaining worship from the other. Sick. Pride is sick. The heart is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And one last behavior I'll give you. Surely this isn't anyone in this room. Stubbornness. <laughs> Stubbornness. This is, uh, this is when we feign perfection. When we tell ourselves we're perfect. We don't need confronted. We don't need to change. We're perfect. Another attribute of God we like to try to claim for ourselves in our own mind. Why would we ever be confronted? Why would we ever change? Well, that's a pride, a proud heart that's saying that. This leads to comparison in marriage. When a husband and a wife is so, or, or a wife is so stubborn, they don't want to address the issues that are really at play. And so there's deflection. Well, at least I'm not like you in this area of your life or whatever. You compare and you aren't willing to change. It creates an environment of competition. Your spouse becomes a rival instead of a partner. How sad is that? Someone who's stubborn, not willing to address the issues, usually speaks words that cut instead of words that build up. Words that tear someone else down so that way you can be lifted up. The relationship becomes compassionless at that point. You don't have compassion in a competition. That's what happens in that relationship. Neither the husband nor the wife are thinking of the position of the other. The husband has no regard for his wife who's been commissioned to submit to him. And the wife has no respect for her husband's authority. When someone's stubborn, that person refuses to see. Turn with me back to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 7. This is a pretty famous illustration from Jesus. Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5, he tells us about stubborn people who refuse to see their own sin, who will not address their own sin. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 1, Jesus says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. 
and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Well, instead of saying brother here, it could say husband or wife, right? A stubborn spouse is not a spouse that's fun to live with. And let me tell you, being right is a major temptation. You can be stubborn while being right. Did you know that? While speaking truth, while having an appropriate worldview, while speaking even wisdom into a situation, you can be a stubborn and proud person. Listen to this quote from Randy Alcorn. Jesus came down hardest on the very people whose doctrinal statement was the closest to his own. Being right is a major temptation to be proud. You might think, well, I speak truth. How could I be proud? Just look at the Pharisees, right? They had a lot of truth, but were they proud? The stubborn, proud spouse is unteachable at best and unapproachable at worst. Living with someone who's unapproachable, how devastating. Men especially are prone to act this way, and I'm not saying women aren't, but men especially, and I think that's because so many men have never seen another man except correction, or just very rarely. They think stubbornness is germane to masculinity, and that's not the case. It's absolutely not the case. It's proud and it's sinful. Well, enough of all of that. Hopefully, you connected with something in there. Uh, We need to put our eyes on Jesus now, don't we? He is the answer to all of our problems. And what I want to propose today, when it comes to pride in marriage, or you could say even pride in marriage, in our deepest relationships where pride creeps in, that we can counter pride with grace. We can counter pride with love, genuine true love. Just like with all of our other problems, it starts with our heart and it starts with the gospel. I want us to think about how Jesus' work impacts our hearts. Paul Tripp calls our hearts our causal core, that, that immaterial core that you have that pushes you, provokes you to do what you do. How does Jesus' work affect your heart? Well, through the message of salvation, we are introduced to a lifetime of looking to Jesus. The message of of salvation we just went through earlier in the service, that though we were lost and straying like sheep, though we were out wandering, God came to rescue us in our sin. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He showed us the most sacrificial, beautiful, wonderful love the world could ever know through His selfless, selfless action of taking our sins upon Him and dying in our place for our sins, receiving the punishment that we deserve. What an amazing sacrifice that was. As we believe in the love of Christ, we entrust ourselves to the love of Christ, we are introduced to a lifetime of looking to Christ. As we first see Christ in the gospel and we embrace Christ in the gospel, that enters 
into a lifetime. That, that's the door that opens up, and now we have a lifetime of walking with Jesus, talking to Jesus. And Christians are called to follow the example of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, we read it at the start of the service last week. It answers so many questions that people might have about pride. It addresses so many manifestations of pride. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 3, Paul wrote to this church, these Christians, saying, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That's an amazing, amazing passage. Verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And it goes on to describe the sacrificial love of Christ as He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for you. Not just generally, but for you in your place. That is selfless. That's the epitome of humility. Humility being, of course, the opposite of pride. Now, you are not a Savior. You'll never be a Savior. Yet, if you're a Christian, you're called to imitate your Savior, aren't you? To follow His example, His selfless love. And when we start with our own hearts and thinking about how Jesus' work affects our own hearts, you know what we're confessing? Talked about this in Sunday school today, too. We're confessing that our problems are internal, not external. We're confessing that our problems are internal, not external. That doesn't mean you don't have conflict in your life, and it's the other person's fault. That happens. But pride, no one makes you be proud, right? No one causes you to sin. Our problems are internal, not external. Your spouse doesn't cause your sin. So when we're seeking to truly believe that our spouse is more important than us, we're having this attitude that was ours, that is ours in Christ. We're believing that we're not better, but we're living in the love that Christ has shared with us. Secondly, besides starting with our heart and starting with the gospel, there needs to be a commitment to love and respect. Remember, we're countering pride with grace. How do we counter pride with grace? Committing to love and respect flowing from humility. Stuart Scott wrote this. He said, if, if pride is the epidemic vice, then humility is the endangered virtue. That's a good sentence. Humility is so rare because it is unnatural to man. Only a Christian who has the Spirit of God can learn genuine humility. The more we learn humility, the more our lives will change. Just as pride is the root of every evil, humility is the root of every virtue. Just as pride is the root of every evil, humility is the root of every virtue. Commitment to love and respect flowing from humility is the answer. Believing you're not God and then living like it is the answer. We want to focus on Jesus Christ and the biblical instruction that we have for our marriages. As Christians of Orchard Hills Bible Church, I want us to have marriages that reflect the gospel. 
I want us to have marriages that are full of humble love. Now, you're never going to be perfect, but we need to pursue this together, don't we? As a community of believers, we have marriages in this community. We want strong and healthy marriages. And the Bible tells us so much about the way that we are to live humbly with one another. This is Colossians 3, 18 and 19. Very brief, but listen to what Paul says. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Your translation might say, husbands, don't be harsh with them. How can you do that except for being committed to love and respect flowing from humility? Desiring and chasing after the role of a selfless imitator of God's grace. You know what's really powerful in a marriage? is when husbands see the grace of God in their wives, or when wives see the grace of God through their husbands. If you are a channel of God's grace, that is powerful in the lives of other people. How were you adopted into God's family? How were you transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son. Through unmerited favor. Grace. Unmerited favor. You didn't earn it. God didn't say, hey, you can be in my family if you do this or that. It was His grace lavished upon us that has made us children of God. That is so, so powerful. We counter pride by pursuing grace. And showing grace, not just being recipients of grace. That's a lot more fun, isn't it? To be a recipient of grace. But to give grace. Another thing I want you to think about is prayer for your spouse. And not just general prayer, but praying for your spouse's spiritual success. Praying for the spiritual success of your husband or wife. And if you're married to someone who's not a believer, you understand this deeply, don't you? Now, if you're married to someone who is a believer... You may not do this very often, and it may be something you need to return to. We actually have some, some uh, example prayers that you can have for your husband or for your wife if you need somewhere to start. I would also add to that, how can you counter pride in marriage? Remembering our vows is important. How often have you gone back and thought about what you said on your wedding day? Those may have been forgotten before you got out of the door of the chapel, right? That's not good. Someone probably recorded the thing. Go dig up the tape, right? Remembering the vows you made. Why do we make vows if we won't remember them? It's good to remember them. You entered into a covenant with those vows. Very important. And so remembering what we committed to in sickness and health, better or worse, rich or poor, till death do we part. Seeking to have an enduring servant's heart toward our spouse, not one that says, serve me like Martha. And I'll just add one final note. How can we counter pride with grace in our marriages? Wise counsel and accountability. So many things in life come back to this, don't they? Getting wise counsel and having accountability. Letting people into your kitchen. Now, this can be literal, but I mean it mostly metaphorically here. Letting people into you know, the most intimate part of your life about your relationships. 
Letting people know how things are going when they ask and not just saying good or okay or, ah, I'm alive. <laughs> like my dad, every time when I was growing up, I'd ask him, how was work? He'd say, oh, it was there. When we're asking each other these questions, it's good to open up, isn't it? Because we don't address these issues in a vacuum. We can't address these issues in a vacuum. Wise counsel and accountability, letting people into your life. Pride will destroy a marriage. Pride has destroyed many marriages. But by God's grace, marriages can be restored. By God's grace, marriages can be strong and healthy. But you have to be aware. You have to be aware. And you have to be willing to address what has to be addressed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are so long-suffering with us, patient and kind. And though we have certainly deserved so much discipline, though we've certainly deserved punishment, you've shown us grace. In the person of Jesus Christ, we have our hope, we have our rest, we have stability, we have love. We thank you for the ways you've corrected us, and you've done it so gently. We thank you for the ways that you've graciously disciplined us and how you've graciously removed all punishment and condemnation. God, give us the insight, the desire, the energy, the passion for godly marriages that pushes us to selflessly serve our spouses, that this church would be full of strong marriages where we want to live out this one flesh commission that you've given us and not seek to tear it apart through our pride. Give us a passion for each other. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.